Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. There are, of course different types of depression. Uh, the most common, dystemia, uh, what many people casually refer to as depression, but the most common forms of mood, this mood disorder is uh, dystemia. And what it's known for is anhedonia, which is a loss of interest or pleasure in our daily activities, along with a lack of productivity, and certain degrees of psychomotor impairment. And I'll talk about that in a little while. Um, there is, in addition to that, uh, cognitive uh, results, including pessimism, feelings of pointless, pointlessness, and uh, uh, gravitation towards isolation, as well as feelings of inadequacy. Dystemia is, um, can generally be low grade to the degree that people can still function. They can still uh, show up for jobs. They can still uh, be in relationship. They can uh, function, but still there's this ongoing mood uh, state that doesn't very often uh, people fall back into this baseline state of a low-grade disappointment uh, and a sense of bleakness, a sense of pessimism, and so forth. Now, major depression differs from dysthemia not only due to its severity, but due to the uh, inevitability of what's called decompensation. Decompensation is when it's not just a mood disorder, but the behavioral changes or the behavioral implications are severe. The individual can no longer function. Very often, uh, an inability to uh, feel any reason to get out of bed, to clean, to eat. Uh, And of course, most commonly, there'll be uh, constant suicidal ideations. Major depression, as opposed to dysthemia, uh, very often will require, at different points, uh, psychiatric intake. And um, it has very often, if it happens in older populations, uh, neurological underpinnings. So as as we age, there can be a decrease in what's called uh, hippocampal volume, uh, also, uh, dysregulation in the cingulate gyrus, which regulates mood, and there's also less production of dopamine. But again, the significant difference between dysthemia and major depression is that in dysthemia, there's still an ability to function, but one's mood tends to fall back to a baseline of pessimism, pointlessness, feelings of inadequacy, uh, and psychomotor impairment, a slowing down uh, of thought and movement, brain fog. Major depression is where there is decompensation, where uh, an individual can no longer function in a way that is... uh, uh, in any way up to the, the the ability to show up for life and other relationships. There's often uh, a severe impairment of motivation, dopamine levels, and uh, as well as the suicidal ideations. Now, what we're talking about tonight is reactive or situational depression. This is a fast onset disorder associated with dysthemia. So you've got essentially the same 
characteristics or symptoms, a loss of interest or pleasure in daily activities, a lack of productivity, an overall sense of pessimism about one's uh, efficacy in the world or the likelihood of one having a lasting impact on other people's lives, a sense of pointlessness. And individuals will, over time, because they are feeling these, uh, this mood shift, will tend towards isolation because they feel other people won't want to see them or be around them. And there's that pessimism of like, what's the point anyway? Situational depression is different than the stemia. The stemia, if you've had it, you would have had it a long time by now. It would be an ongoing state. It would be uh, essentially your baseline state that you would revert back to despite even having good news in life. Situational depression, on the other hand, is what happens after a significant event. It generally is fast onset, so it'll happen within uh, a couple of weeks. And very often, it's triggered by losses. Losses of attachment figures, such as loved ones, loss of employment, Loss of interpersonal connection. So, for example, when people retire from jobs where they felt well connected and then they their lives take on an element of uh, isolation, that can cause situational depression, divorce, a business failure, financial insecurity, postpartum depression, and so forth. So these are essentially situational reactive depression is that which follows a, an event that involves some kind of loss or trauma. And it's important to address it, even though many forms of situational depression will slowly over time, as the situations change, they will slowly heal. But if we don't address it, they can, in cases, turn into dystemia and major depression. So uh, even if you haven't had depression before in any significant way and you find that now you're experiencing some of the symptoms such as an overall feeling of profound pointlessness and inability to enjoy the daily activities which in the past uh, created a sense of purpose and joy, if there's uh, feelings of inadequacy that are constant, or if you find yourself uh, uh, tending to be far more isolated than you have in the past, then we would want to address this uh, situational depre depression. And of course, uh, during a pandemic, uh, situational depression is rife. Um, the reason I'm giving this talk is because due to my Buddhist pastoral work, where the bulk of my work is in uh, connecting with individuals for spiritual counseling on a daily basis, uh, it's, a, it's a trend that is, of course, happening significantly these days because all of us, uh, or not all of us, I should say, but many of us, are experiencing some form of loss due to the pandemic and uh, social distancing. Uh, at the very least, many of us are feeling a lack of the same degree of interpersonal connections which regulate our emotions and which regulate our nervous system. Many of us have also had financial implications as well as uh, a loss of a sense of surety uh, about our future and what we're going to do, uh, our plans that we had for the future and so forth. So given that situational depression is associated with a reaction or an aftermath of a significant loss and a pandemic is or takes the shape of losses, it's not surprising that this is such a timely topic. Um, so what's the difference between anxiety and depression? Uh, many, many people confuse the two. And in fact, um, when you get treated from, for anxiety, people will give you what are called 
antidepressants, <laughs> even though actually the medications that are effective are, in fact, anxiolytics, not antidepressants in a really clinical way. So anxiety is the chronic activation of the sympathetic nervous system. Essentially, it creates hypervigilance, a jumpy state of awareness, uh, loss generally in appetite, obsessive, spiraling, spinning out ideations or thoughts. Um, this is because when the sympathetic nervous system is activated, the midline of the brain, the ventral medial area, is, uh, which is responsible for self-fixated thoughts, like what's going to happen to me, what do other people think about me, how do I fit in, and so forth, those types of thoughts are activated and they tend to trigger these striatums so they become cyclical, intrusive, they revolve. It's difficult to switch off spiraling thoughts once they start. Now, depression uh, can start off like anxiety with an overactivation of the sympathetic nervous system, but crucially, there's a difference. With depression, the, the, essentially the autonomic nervous system is overwhelmed and we go into what's called colloquially a dorsal dive or a shutdown, and we fall into an ancient state of the parasympathetic nervous system. Um, so instead of being jumpy, restless, uh, constantly having repetitive thoughts, we go into very often an inverse state. Uh, the levels of norepinephrine, norepinephrine and uh, dopamine are depleted, and this leads to what I referred to previously as psychomotor impairment. That's a slowing down of thought and movement, a loss of the ability to focus our attention, brain fog, where uh, focusing, developing thoughts of how to pursue to pursue or address issues in life. Um, and and uh, in this state, instead of having the repetitive thoughts, worrying about catastrophizing what's going to happen to me in the future, uh, very often the left ventral medial will in interpret this sluggish, torporish state uh, as futility. There's no point. There's nothing I can do. There's no way I can ever address this. Uh, there's this overriding sense of futility. So whereas anxiety is a state of restlessness, jumpiness, startled, you know, the startle uh, response, and the thoughts tend to be catastrophizing thoughts of what will happen to me in the future. Um, due to the, the crash that happens in depression and the uh, psychomotor impairment, there's, and the slowing down of thought and movement, the loss of focus, now the thoughts are all just pessimistic. What's the point? What's the point? Why bother? So given these differences, it's still worth noting that both anxiety and depression can often show up in individuals uh, uh, and they, are, they can be comorbid. So suppose you have an anxiety disorder. Suppose you are prone to insomnia, Suppose you tend to catastrophize. Suppose you have a great degree of separation anxiety in life. And that will in turn uh, turn into what's called avoidance coping, where you avoid situations that make you nervous, that make you restless, that make you feel scared. In avoiding those situations, there will in turn be a lack of opportunity for pleasurable experiences in your life. And after that, a low mood associated with dysthemia might arise. So the long-term result of an anxiety disorder can also turn into feelings of, pessim of uh, pointlessness, pessimism, and isolation. But that's the result. It's not the core cause. And generally, the primary state will be one of restless anxiety. On the other hand, 
if you have a depressive disorder, um, the tendency towards despair and isolation uh, will eventually over time make any attempt to re-engage with the world uh, awkward. Going back into social situations, engaging in uh, uh, larger social events whenever they wind up happening again in the world will create feelings of anxiety because we essentially over time, due to depression, lose a sense of confidence in our interpersonal life. But again, if the underlying feature is anxiety, the predominant symptoms will be restlessness, insomnia, uh, often loss of appetite, inability to relax, jumpiness. Whereas if the predominant underlying state is um, loss of interest, loss of pleasure, lack of productivity, pessimism, pointlessness, sluggishness, and inability to form thoughts, then we are talking about depression, whether it's dysthemia or it is uh, reactive situational depression. So I hope that sort of gives us a bit of a guideline as to what the differences are between the two. So what are the theories of depression? Um, my background when I was, uh, so I grew up in a, interestingly enough, in the, uh, the 70s, my father converted to Buddhism. So I grew up in a Buddhist, a family where Buddhism was practiced, but my mom was heavily into Freud and psychology. So that wound up to be also a, a love of mine. And it was what my academic studies uh, almost invariably revolved around. So I'm going to cover first some of the psychological theories of what cause or makes us susceptible to depression. And then um, we'll talk about ways to address it. And then a Buddhist techniques to address depression. So one dominant theory of depression is that there's almost invariably an underlying uh, original significant attachment disturbance in childhood, which means a failure to bond in an empathetic, reliable way with one or both caregivers. Anxious people tend to have experienced at some point, positive bonding that due to a death or a divorce or due to just a parent becoming busy became unreliable. Whereas the people who are prone to depression tended to have experienced in childhood a caregiver who was utterly incapable of soothing, empathetic, compassionate, attentive uh, interactions with the child. It was almost an ongoing state. So there's a significant difference there. Children who had a severely compromised attachment bond with a caregiver in childhood wind up with a tendency towards self-reliance, a lack of trust in others, and they are prone to feelings of emotional isolation. What's the point, essentially? Other people won't get it, won't understand me because my earliest attachment experience was disappointing. In other words, depression starts very young and it's a kind of giving up on bonding. And it's uh, not done consciously. The child just eventually over countless patterns of disappointing interactions um, winds up losing interest in connecting with a caregiver. And this uh, has been positively implicated in longitudinal studies with those who are prone to dysthemia and major depression and situational depression. Now, a second very similar theory is that um, learned helplessness if a child, in childhood, we learn what to expect of the world and expect of other people by observing the adults around us. If a child grows up with parents who do not model confidence, that do not exhibit 
a sense of agency as in they can make uh, positive steps forward in their life who don't model what it's like to address problems in an, in, a, in an effective way. If a child grows up with parents who tend to give up or resign themselves to their fate, the child will interject um, this, this uh, model of how to behave and what to expect from life. And it turns into a underlying state of helplessness in the world. Very often, children who grow up with parents that didn't model agency have a, what's called a lack of resilience. Resilience is our ability to bounce back, our ability to, after setbacks, essentially get back on the bike or try uh, again and again and again to succeed at something that it's, that's been difficult. Children who grow up with parents that model agency and confidence and uh, reward them for their efforts, these children tend to grow up and they have resilience because after setbacks, they don't blame themselves. They blame circumstances, they blame other people, they just don't blame themselves. A child that grows up in a situation where efficacy isn't modeled by the parents, where there isn't attention and appreciation due, awarded to the child for its efforts, that child will attribute setbacks to their core self. Oh, this went badly because I'm unlovable, there's something wrong with me, I'll never get it right. Essentially, they believe that there's something in themselves that is flawed. And so, essentially, learned helplessness turns into this damaged sense of self. Again, both these theories are attributable, in essence, to early attachments or early relationships. Finally, a third very dominant theory of depression is what's called unresolved grief. Um, all of us have to a degree, mixed impulses in relationship to other people in our life, including important people in our life. So attachment figures, even though we might love our parents or love um, uh, older siblings and so forth, there often will be feelings of anger due to disappointing experiences. There also will be feelings of distance seeking where we'll want to get away. And there also at times will be um, anxiety of separation. So in addition to feelings of bonding and love and attachment, all important relationships also have other emotions there that we don't like to acknowledge. Now, if anger is a significant part of an important relationship and the attachment figure dies that we feel some degree of anger, the individual really might struggle to integrate or share about or process that anger. They will feel in, in some sense embarrassed to acknowledge that they had such a degree of anger towards a father or mother. They feel inhibited to disclose to other people this sense of disappointment that they felt in the relationship. And so um, what happens is the anger, rather than being resolved and talked about, is repressed, it's turned inwards, and the anger eventually is directed at one's sense of self, a sense of core shame. And again, the results are negative self-ideations. I'm unlovable, I'll die alone, there's no point. Essentially, the anger that one felt towards the abandonment by the parent or the, uh, the time the parent wasn't able to intercede and protect the child, if the child doesn't, isn't able as an adult to talk about those experiences, process them, make sense of them, then in adult life, those that, that disappointment and anger will be turned inward 
against their very own sense of identity and who they are. So over time, it can create tendencies of lack of self-care, addiction, suicidal ideations, and so forth. No matter what theory you espouse, uh, these or others, um, maybe all of them, uh, maybe none of them, there's no doubt that depression creates an addict, a, a repetitive cycle that re-triggers itself. As we gravitate towards isolation, there's greater stress in any interactions with others. There's greater sense of pessimism. And at that point, there'll be greater anxiety. With greater anxiety, there'll be more avoidance coping. With more avoidance coping, there'll be more isolation. And over time, the lack of interpersonal uh, bonding and social connectedness will lead to an individual who is uh, pessimistic about all human interpersonal life. It's a vicious cycle. So how do we address uh, situational depression? There are many tools available. Situational depression, uh, of all the forms of depression, dysthemia, major depression, and so forth, it's generally the most amenable to tools and is the, it is by far and away the most likely to be successfully uh, alleviated if we take the time to work on the tools. So, one, when I work with people who have situational depression, the very first thing I do is I, I address any forms of social isolation or and B, I try to steer people away, steer them away from unreliable relationships. So social isolation, of course, is the most damaging because as we know from Kochiopo's work at the University of Chicago and all his great research, um, in connecting with other people in a very authentic, disclosing way where we share about our struggles and we share about our challenges, there's what's called limbic co-regulation. Our nervous systems tend to align with the people we talk about, we talk with, the people that we share our experience with. And if we are in a state of psychomotor impairment, they will lift us up and they will uh, essentially regulate our emotions naturally. As a tribal species, a species that is of pack animals, a species that survived and, uh, and thrived due to our social connections, so many structures in the brain, especially the anterior cingulate cortex and regions of the temporal lobe and frontal lobe, uh, are all switched on positively by social interactions. So the first thing I do is um, connect people and steer them away from chasing attention and empathy from those who can't give it. it some people are frightened if they give up those relationships or if they put boundaries in those relationships where they're not getting their attachment needs met. Uh, that somehow they'll wind up alone, but in continuously chasing after uh, attention from somebody who's not reliably available, from somebody who is prone to shaming or judgment, all we're doing is we are essentially reenacting the attachment wounds that started the problem in the first place. So it's so essential to redirect our attention to those who are actually available and get ourselves out of the repetition compulsion of constantly trying to connect with people who are not available. It's very important not to worry alone. When we worry alone, the brain activity largely involves the amygdala, which is where threats are processed. 
if you worry with another person, you talk about fears or concerns about your future or finances, you'll actually be using areas of the dorsolateral frontal cortex. And that's the region of the brain where rational long-term decisions are made. So simply talking about our anxieties with another human being actually changes the brain that you're in. So if you find yourself spinning out about a worry in the, uh, in the future uh, or, about some, or about something that you cannot cope with, it's most important if you don't have anybody available right then, it's night, write it down, write out the fears, put it aside, do whatever you need to do to uh, focus on something else, watch TV, whatever. And then as soon as you can connect with somebody and tell them about what you've been worried about, that way you're shifting the way you're processing the information from ventral uh, and um, the amygdala to dorsal uh, regions of the brain. Uh, now I know that in a time of pandemics, it's very, very difficult to address social isolation. We all, to a lesser or greater degree, feel more isolated or disconnected than we did in, you know, January. Um, so uh, there, whatever way we can connect with people, whether it's pushing ourselves to reach out, to try to set up, one-on-one -on -one calls. Uh, studies also show that volunteerism boosts oxytocin and raises our serotonin levels. So any form of volunteerism, any form at all, brings about positive mood shifts. Um, there's an organization I found that looks great. I've already looked at it for opportunities, uh, volunteermatch.org. And it's uh, just basically has a list of all the uh, opportunities available right now during the pandemic to do something uh, that's pro-social or pro-tribal. So that's a really efficient way to shift because any act of generosity or uh, empathetic engagement with others raises your oxytocin. Oxytocin is the primary neurotransmitter, or actually it's a neuropeptide, I'm sorry, implicated with uh, mood boosts. It also raises serotonin, which you want to do as well. Second, after we address uh, the social isolation, we put aside turning towards unreliable people for attachment needs. If we can't find anybody, we focus on volunteerism or something that connects us with others in a positive way. The second thing to do is to talk about unresolved anger and grief. Now, this might be awkward, because we all feel like, well, what's the point? There's a pandemic going on here right now. I'm depressed because I'm on, you know, uh, I'm, my job has put me on furlough or whatever. I'm not, uh, I'm unemployed or I'm not able to connect with my 12-step group or whatever. Um, why do I need to talk about unresolved anger or grief from the past? Well, because there's a direct correlation between compartmentalized emotions and, um, and isolation and pessimism. So if you can bring to mind some of the losses that you've had interpersonally in your life and just ask ourselves, is there something that I've never expressed or felt or given space to in my life that I need to address? And then find someone to talk about those feelings. When we get the unintegrated or the parts of ourselves that have been compartmentalized uh, out in the open, there is invariably a diminishment of uh, inclinations towards uh, pointlessness and so forth. So uh, in most therapies that address successfully depression, not only do they address social isolation, but they also encourage us to look back on 
unresolved relationships in the past. Finally, another important area, of course, as any cognitive behavioral therapist will tell us, is also to address what's called cognitive distortions, the type of thoughts that are self-triggering and are positively implicated with depression. So what are those thoughts? Um, black or white thinking, any form of, uh, of extreme overgeneralization and globalizing. What this means is statements that have the words always, never in them, like I'll always, blah, 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 or people never, blah, 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 or I'll never be able to, blah, blah, blah. Any ever, always, never um, statements are classic overgeneralization. Black or white thinking are there's only two possible outcomes to any event, complete success or complete failure, nothing in between. So, and generally those who are depressed will always go to the negative. Um, people who are depressed also disqualify positive experiences, skills, and resilience. What does that mean? When they will, are quick to talk about their deficiencies, their challenges, the times that they feel they haven't been able to successfully achieve something, their setbacks, but they will never on their own bring up positive experiences that are emblemic of uh, their own skills, their own sense of resilience, their own capabilities, and so forth. So they tend to disqualify the positive events. Likewise, they are quick to bring to mind times that they feel disappointed by others, times that others haven't shown up for them, a sense that no one will understand. They will disqualify all the people in times where somebody did show up, somebody did care, somebody did reach out to them and so forth. So it's important to eradicate overgeneralization, disqualifying positive experiences, black or white, thinking where there's only two possibilities, complete failure or success, and catastrophizing, of course. People with uh, situational depression tend to always believe that the worst possible outcome is the most likely. So uh, I was talking with somebody who was pretty successful. Um, their industry took a hit during right uh, when the pandemic started they they were in you know a, a kind of uh, work where that was uh, dependent on people getting together and like other people they immediately jumped into the catastrophizing thoughts of i'll never be able to do that again the world will never be the same people will never do this industry again so such thoughts, of course, are not only extreme and unlikely, but they tend to trigger pessimism and so forth. Finally, um, there are other uh, tools at our disposal. Um, vitamin B6 is, of course, associated with uh, some degree of mood boost. The supplement tyrosine is a dopamine precursor, and it can be taken very safely in low doses, generally two to 300 milligrams a day. And if you take it over a period of weeks and so forth, generally people, their dopamine levels rise. When their dopamine levels rise, the psychomotor impairments, the sluggishment, and the brain fog can dissipate somewhat. It's very important to be patient. There is no such a thing as a magical pill, especially when it comes to depression, but these are available. Studies also show that sunlight and exercise 
due to the release of endorphins and vitamin D also our mood boosts. So these all in conjunction with addressing the social isolation, uh, the cognitive distortions, the unre unresolved anger and grief and so forth are all the tools that uh, are commonly available. There are also, however, uh, meditations that are implicated in addressing depression. And tonight we're going to do one. It's actually based on two of the Buddha's uh, daily suggested meditations. Uh, they're known as Kaga Nusati and Sila Nusati. Kaga Nusati is a recollection of others' generosity towards us and our own generosity towards others. And Sila Nusati is recollections of all of the positive, um, skillful, uh, virtuous actions we've done. Sila Nusati can be, for instance, a reflection on not only things we've actually done, uh, it can also be, for example, reflections on our sobriety, our, or our self-care, or times when we could have, uh, instead of uh, mood eating or binge watching, we did something that was self-caring and so forth. So we're going to do this meditation. And uh, one of the most wonderful things about these practices is the work of um, uh, Daniel P. Brown and Sam Elliott at Harvard. Uh, have used these meditations in, in addressing depression and self-esteem wounds, and they found a strong correlation with alleviation. So uh, their, their version of these meditations is very simple to do. So I'm going to be doing a blend of contemporary versions of these practices along with the ancient ones. Whew. So thank you for listening. Uh, I hope something in tonight's talk was interesting or of value. Um, if you'd like to support uh, a Buddhist pastor's work in Brooklyn, uh, the Venmo is Dharma, D-H-A-R-M-A-P-U-N-X-N-Y-C. And the PayPal is on the site where all the talks are, which is Dharma Punks NYC at Podbean. So, um, or on the website, dharmapunksnyc.com. So uh, anything you can do to help out is appreciated. But of course, if you lost uh, work or your income flow, no worries whatsoever, and only give what feels good for you, never what causes stress. So thanks for that. Let's find a really comfortable seated position and uh, upright. And what we're going to do is we're going to close the eyes and we're going to start by self-soothing the autonomic nervous system. So, let's start by taking a nice full in-breath and squinching the muscles in the face and squinching the nose and clenching the jaw, tightening the muscles in the cheek and the forehead, and then I'm breathing out slowly. And I'm just releasing all the cranial muscles. The cranial muscles are part of the vagal nerve, and that is a nerve that's implicated with mood. It's also implicated with states of the autonomic nervous system. So in relaxing, toning the vagal nerve, we are sending messages up the brain saying that we're safe. 
And now a second full inhalation in the nose, and I'm going to lift up my shoulders, and I'm going to roll them back to open up my chest. And then as I breathe out, slowly through the mouth, I'm going to drop my arms and shoulders and just let them hang lifelessly. No energy in them anymore. And because I've pulled my, rotated my shoulders back, my chest is now nice and open so it can receive the breath. And then we'll do a third in-breath. We'll breathe into the middle of the abdomen, the belly. And as we breathe in, we'll feel the belly expand, bloat out like a balloon. And as we exhale, just feel the belly soften, be compliant, released. Belly breathing where we feel the predominant energy of the uh, respiration in the belly, not in the chest, not in the nose or the throat, but in the belly is the most soothing form. When we predominantly feel the sensations in our chest, it's associated with excitation. Abdominal breathing is associated with relaxation, ease. And we want to incline the breath to focus on long, smooth, easeful exhalations. Exhalations release acetylcholine in the vagal nerve, tones it. Relaxes. If for those of you that feel those sluggish and tired, you want to do the opposite. You want to focus on really full, invigorating inhalations into the chest. And so you can steer your meditation almost like a rowboat if your meditation becomes, if your mind becomes jumpy, unsettled, difficult to relax, wiry, then what you want to do is shift the attention to those long exhalations and releasing any tension in the belly, the chest, and so forth. But if you start to feel like you're drifting away into a fog, then you want to row the other way. You want to focus on the inhalations into the chest. Strong, complete, invigorating, full inhalations. I very often like to ride the energy from the top of my belly to the chest on the inhalation, like I'm surfing the front of my body, riding a wave of energy back to shore. And then as the energy recedes, riding it back down from the chest to the belly, up and down. We could think of it like surfing, the inhalation paddling up 
from the belly to the chest, and then the long, comfortable surfing back to shore with the out-breaths back from the chest down to the belly, feeling that energy moving up and down. Trying to relax into this moment, which means while we breathe comfortably, allow your awareness to survey your body and find any area that feels tight or numb or painful, throbbing, tingling. Breathing into that area and just sending a message of compassion to the discomfort, encouraging the muscles around it to release. Relaxing into this moment means agreeing that there's no other time that's more important than this moment. There's no other opportunity than this moment, the present, to find peace of mind. There's nowhere we need to go. There's nothing we need to do. There's no issue right now we need to resolve. Right now, our sole job is just to reconnect with our lived experience.
So at this point, we're going to do the visualization practice. I'd like you to bring to mind either an image or the name or both of somebody you associate with generosity, compassion. If there's an individual you who has shown up for you, who in any reliable sense has been willing to listen without judgment. When you're around them, you feel your body relax. There's no need to perform. There's no need to try to keep their interest because you know that they care and are interested in you. So just bring to mind anyone who in any way exemplifies that. If no one comes to mind, immediately visualize someone in the world who exhibits these qualities. Somebody you associate with kindness. And just visualize either their face looking at you with an expression of care, or just think of their name. Repeat their name, whispering it in your mind. If you'd like, take a hand and place it on your heart center. Just see the individual or repeat their name. Once you have a sense of this person, what it's like to be with them, just we can shift the phrase in our mind to, I love you, keep going. I love you, keep going. I love you, keep going. An very simple expression of gratitude. I love you, keep going. A desire to see them healthy, happy, free of stress. I love you, keep going. And if you can now bring to mind someone else another person associated with care, compassion, someone who appreciates. Not only appreciates you, but is empathetic, listens, doesn't have any degree of judgment or disinterest. Someone you can turn to. And again, if no one comes to mind right now, just bring to mind someone who does some figure who you do associate with those qualities. And again, whichever figure you work with, visualize them looking at you with an expression of care and feel breathing in to any warmth in your heart center. If you can't visualize them, just repeat their name softly. And then the phrase, I love you, keep going. I love you, keep going. I love you, keep going.
And while we could continue with other individuals, I'd like to move us to the second practice of Sila Nusati. And what I'd like you to do is visualize either from memory or from something you'd like to do that would be of benefit or has been of benefit to others. Something that expresses your highest sense of self. An action that creates the greatest sense of pride and esteem, a sense of virtuousness. This could be something that you've actually done frequently. It could be something you would like to do that would be of benefit to others. And what we do in this practice is visualize one or more people who would be positively benefited by this action, either those who've benefited from us in the past or those we would benefit in the future. Just visualizing them. Feeling any warmth in the heart center. If you don't, again, having a hand on the heart center is wonderful. Visualizing people that have benefited in any way from us, from our activities, or those we'd like to help. Breathing into that warmth in the heart center and spreading it. And lastly, bring to mind an image of yourself at any point in your life, today or earlier. And just repeat the phrase, I love you, keep going. 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 Breathing in to the heart center spreading any feeling of warmth through your body. Let the oxytocin of positive intentions do its work to bring a sense of peace and uplift. So at this point, I'm going to ring the bowl. And when you hear the sound, take your time and uh, just allow any feelings that have developed in the practice, bring them with you.